Welcome to another Biota Recording. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of talking once again with Anton. Anton, I received quite a bit of feedback from listeners associated with our last conversation. They were excited to hear Biota-related discussion again. I will be talking with Tim Taylor this Sunday. So he said that he doesn't have much to say about simulation as a service, and really he's not totally sure what we'll be talking about, but I'm sure at least from the conversation this evening, we'll be able to instigate some conversations with Tim Taylor as well. So thank you for the chance to chat again today. Yeah, it sounds great. I'm glad people enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it as well. So I was re-listening to the recording today because I kind of walked away from it even after post-producing it and putting in a bit of editing, thinking, I really don't want to sound like too much of a downer, but I did want to start tonight <laughs> with regards <laughs> to a circumstance that has presented itself on Wikipedia. And I've contacted... Uh, Tim and a few other folk in the community, just to let them know that uh, from my experience, I've actually had my pages deleted now on Wikipedia, but a number of other pages in the community are marked for deletion. Some projects have already been deleted. The circumstances currently with Wikipedia is that I think probably when I last recorded about this about a decade ago, the quality of articles that were being written, and to be clear here, listeners to this very podcast put together the Wikipedia articles associated with my project Noble Ape and also, I think, me personally. And podcast listeners kind of continue to maintain pages. I know um, they put in efforts with regards to the Artificial Life Organizations page and a bunch of other projects, Crititing, I think maybe Polyworld, I know Bioids. There were a variety of pages on Wikipedia that were put together by listeners at the time in a kind of 2006, 2008 time frame and they have been in place up until recently uh, obviously as i noted last recording i've got additional issues going on but there seems to be a need currently for these pages to be changed to a more universal format through wikipedia in particular with regards to external references and a lot of external references and i've tried through my own deletion process to get what the standard is now through Wikipedia, because I have probably at least half a dozen historical articles, um, a bunch of academic publishing. I mean, a number of different sources. I can't actually remember because I didn't, <laughs> the pages on Wikipedia weren't, weren't really my interest specifically, but I remember putting up uh, some of the Apple, well, one of the Apple related articles and some other things online uh, to assist a Wikipedia editor uh, at the time. So, Whatever's happening currently, if the field of artificial life is expunged from Wikipedia, it will mean that people such as Anton will not be able to discover the field. And certainly the appeal that I made to Wikipedia was that this is a community impact thing, that although they feel very much that they're adhering to various standards that they want to adhere to on Wikipedia going forwards, there aren't a lot of sources to get information, easily accessible information on artificial life. And while I agree the stuff that was on Wikipedia wasn't particularly ideal, it still represented a means of people coming to my site and my work through one of the few means that was left, particularly after, you know, Google was paid for to eliminate searches for my work and YouTube was paid for to eliminate searches for my work. So. Wikipedia was one of the last means that people would access my stuff and to have right, that pulled right. in the past week has been really very curious because I've been defending myself, but I'm not really even defending myself. I'm defending 
the people that wrote the articles 10 years ago. And it's a very curious circumstance. That Did I've they state why they're currently. putting it down? or they? Well, they reference, if you've ever encountered Wikipedia folk, <laughs> they have yeah. these pages that they reference, you know, three, four-letter acronym pages. But actually what came through, which I've gotten some acknowledgement of now, in my deletion, was they didn't read any other references. They took a, a slight to the tone of the article, and you've got to appreciate this was written by people <laughs> more than a decade ago right. about what they found was important. So, for example, the fact that I spent 18 months with Wozniak, which I don't particularly talk about, it's not a highlight of my life, it's certainly, you know, it's something that occurred, but, <laughs> you know, I spent eight years working at a major tech company doing a bunch of other interesting stuff with simulation if people would care to you know, take interest in that aspect of my life. So, I mean, I guess what I found striking was that I was, firstly, they asserted that it was a puff piece and that I had written it, even though that wasn't the case. And if I had written it, I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have maintained it in the way that it was maintained. My view historically has been that if you edit your own stuff on Wikipedia, your stuff will get deleted. So it's just a stupid thing to do. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly in discussions with others, I've advised them of that. I'm not even sure what the case is now associated with that whole thing. But because mm -hmm. I'm being asked to justify personally stuff that others had written about me on Wikipedia more than a decade ago, the whole thing is very curious. Now, they didn't read any of the links. So I've, re I've lodged an appeal, which was a very interesting process because it was just a bunch of people that had said, delete, delete, delete. You know, mm -hmm. there's no additional information aside from the reference to me spending time with Wozniak, just delete, delete, delete. So mm. when I went back, I said, you know, I'd like some more information here. If we're trying to improve Wikipedia, if that's the end goal, which I'm completely in agreement about, run, just say, delete, 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 move on, which is exactly what they said when I got in contact with them at the appeal. Let's have more information so I can help others get their pages right on Wikipedia. I mean, it's simple. So thankfully, after a couple of cycles of me saying the same thing over again, and then saying delete, 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 which seems to be a really curious way to communicate. But anyway, they are now acknowledging that they would like to see the sources, which they no longer have access to because they deleted the page, which is curious. So I provided my local version of the sources, which I've maintained for many years, because obviously things are removed on the internet. You know, they're now reviewing those. So my hope is that I can appeal what has occurred and I can try to write these circumstances, but it has been an uphill and taxing thing, which has taken a good portion of my time, which I could be spending working on Noble Ape. And I think yeah. going forward, we as a community need to be incredibly aware that we will be viewed in a very hostile and negative light by people who are in their, I'm assuming you're not in your early 20s, Anton, but people who are in their early 20s. And unless we provide things that they want to see, they will not permit our stuff to continue to be out there in the forms that they've been out there. If Wikipedia wants to take the stance that sort of like smaller, scrappy articles are need to be brought up to snuff, well, that's fine. I mean, that's uh, if Wikipedia wants to go that route. That's fine. That's not what it's traditionally been. It's sort of done it by allowing whatever on and have it, you know, go through the processes, good or bad. But I think, um, as we've talked before, A-Life, because it's such a fragmented field, and because all the projects are, frankly, quite weird, oftentimes, and oftentimes completely uh, impenetrable, like you can, I can look at someone's work and not understand it whatsoever, even though I'm reasonably sort of steeped in the field. So unless you're like a 
you know, it's almost like uh, high-end mathematics or something where people just can't even communicate it unless they're like locked in a room together for hours. So it's not going to survive that kind of secondary or even tertiary reference process. So if that's the case, you know, I think the Wikipedia format is still quite good. So, I mean, just running a private wiki somewhere might be the best thing. And related to the fact that it's hard to find this stuff online, I think there's just a fundamental like wording problem right now because artificial intelligence has become so hot at the moment. Pretty much if you type in artificial life, you're more likely to find like a random news article about artificial intelligence that's talking about life than you are to like get hit with the actual field. And that's just, I mean, I think that's inescapable. You're not going to get Google to sort of like get smarter or change their policies or whatever. So like, obviously you can't rebrand it, but if there was at least, if there was a major website for artificial life that could be considered the hub, then there's just a much higher chance that that would surface. And then once you're in there, you're kind of in your own little world. And then from there, you you presumably could find other things because there's no way like if I look for if I type in artificial life bees, I, I'm not going to find anything like it, it's going to be 10 pages before something of interest can occur. And then oftentimes the pages look weird and dodgy and I don't know what's going on anyway. So, yeah, if there was a hub, it would help a lot. A community maintained hub that had, you know, not lower standards, but at least standards that could be in line with a couple of hobbyists typing this stuff up, right? Because the larger articles that you see on Wikipedia now, you know, for better or for worse, they're written by dozens, if not hundreds of people. So, you know, maybe they're inaccurate or whatever, but the production quality, like the sheer man hours that are being put into them is huge. I mean, you can't expect that out of a small community. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a bit of a losing battle if, if, if it's, if it is going to be this kind of more fragmented field, which, I think it's hard for it not to be due to the kind of reasons we discussed people's personalities and so on. So one of the people that reviewed or didn't even review just provided references to Noble Ape for the deletion on Wikipedia wrote an extended treatise on my mother's an author, not really professionally because she was a diplomat, but she wrote books and had them published and run awards for writing books. And she was part of a writer's group in Australia. And one of the people that reviewed Noble Ape wrote the article on one of my mother's writing friends. And it is extraordinary the level of detail that she wrote into this article. In fact, I contacted her after the deletion process and said to her, I actually know Sarah Douse, the woman who she wrote on, which she'd probably know because my mother's name is the same as my name. She's not called Thomas, but she's called Bubbly. <laughs> and through this, it does take a particular, it takes Wikipedians, whatever these things are, to write articles. What we need to do, which we historically had a decade ago, is half a dozen, maybe just three or four, dedicated souls who research the standards on Wikipedia and then write artificial life articles on Wikipedia mm. as a means of communicating exactly the problem that you discovered, which is that it's really difficult to find the state of the art. It's really oh. difficult to find projects about certain things that should be relatively easy to find. Obviously, Google is not helping the process. So, yes, it would be wonderful to have a private wiki, but it would also be wonderful to have people like we had a decade ago who were actively writing to the uh, the Wikipedia standards at the time, of only now, that could go into the depth that this person did with regards to my mother's writer friend. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, would solve the problem fundamentally with regards to Wikipedia. 
I shouldn't be representing my work with Wikipedia. That's perfectly clear, and I feel kind of dirty doing that. But in the short term, that's the only way this thing is going to move forward sufficient that I can provide information at least out to the community associated with what happened with me. Um, mm. But we really need others to do this thing. So what I would implore is, even if you're listening to this podcast and you weren't part of the original Wikipedians that wrote the articles on artificial life more than a decade ago, consider if this is not your way to actually assist this relatively fragile and uh, bespoke <laughs> community. And that would be my appeal. That would definitely work as well. I mean, that's uh, that. if people step up, that would be fantastic. It would give me a chance to actually work on Noble 8, which I have done. I've done a substantial amount of work, work on Noble 8 this weekend. In fact, that's the sole reason that I wrote an appeal. I was just going to walk away based <laughs> on the, the quality of delete, delete, delete commentary. So originally, up until Sunday evening, I was going to walk away from this thing. And then I thought, look, I'm perfectly capable of writing an appeal. So anyway. Hopefully, I will have better news for Tim Taylor when I talk to him on Sunday. <laughs> I wanted to talk about what I was working on this weekend, which was partially this concept of artificial life in the cloud or artificial life as simulation services. And I'm going to digress a little bit here and explain why I'm doing this currently. Noble 8, from when I started writing it 23 years ago, was written in the C language. C is a language, ladies and gentlemen. It may not be taught in universities anymore, but it was a language. It still is, really. Writing the simulation in C has cost me probably tens, if not hundreds, of contributors in the past decade. It's not a language that's used anymore. It's even more bespoke and elaborate than Wikipedia scrawl. And it's something that I realize now I probably should have discarded about a decade ago. I've split Noble Ape in half. I've taken the graphics component of Noble Ape and I now call that the client, and I've taken all the simulation under that, which simulates weather, biological interactions, a wide variety of psychological interactions, language, communication, internal narrative associated with other apes, the ape meets and doesn't meet. I mean, a wide variety of aspects of this thing, which not was not just created by me, it was created by me, a gentleman called Bob Mottram, a fellow called Riddle Pentapalli, uh, a gentleman called Pedro Ferreira, a bunch of engineers at Apple and Intel. There are lots of different components of the code, although in the past three, four years, it's been primarily me that has rewritten almost all of it, taking this, dividing it in half. The upper half I am writing in Swift, the client I'm writing in Swift, because there's a new generation of developers that I have a lot of exposure to at work where Swift is their religion. That's all they write in. I could have written in Java. I have historically written in Java for those that are interested in Android. And that option is always there as well. The other side, the simulation side, is currently written with a server surface layer, just an HTTP, HTTPS server, and then the entire simulation behind it driving a JSON output, which updates based on the client interaction. But also you can just do through changing URL params, basically. The aim is to rewrite all of that in Node.js, which currently is the you know, language of the, again, similar to the Swift end, is the language of the new folk that I'm encountering continuously at work, that this is what they program in. It could have been written in a variety of other things, Java, JavaScript, well, Node.js. So maybe PHP, who knows, a variety of things, but I'm picking Node.js. That is the new division. So I've set myself a date, which is always important, 23 years, June 13th this year. My hope is to launch a majority of that. Noble8.io is the site that's covering all of this. 
and we'll cover it after the launch. So that is the project I've been working on to get simulation as a service, which has been the mantra for many years of this gentleman, Pedro Ferreira, who worked on Noble 8 10 years ago, told me, you need to start doing this thing as a service. You need to break up all the underlying components. Oh, the other thing is, once you've broken up the simulation part, the bit that makes the timing, the bit that does the landscape, the bit that does the biology, uh, the bit that does all the other interactions in the simulation can become individual services, microservices, which you then write accordingly. So that is what I'm working on currently with Noble 8. And it is very much in line with stuff that Tim Taylor was talking about, again, five years ago. And I think it's a fascinating way of moving these concepts in simulation to a new audience, a new developer audience. What say you, Anton? Well, I mean, I think it will be hard for me to to side. I mean, so uh, uh, how do I put this? So maybe you hit on the wrong person, but I love C. <laughs> I absolutely hate JavaScript. Well, <laughs> but I totally I, like. I'm I'm 100 in agreement with your thrust of like, let's get new people on board and let's modernize this thing. I think there's a lot of huge advantage to getting it on the web. I think I'm just like selfishly just so deeply hateful of web programming. Well, here's, here's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, currently, what's interesting is on the Swift side, let's talk about the Swift side, slightly less political in this discussion. I've already found issues in Swift, which means that there are sub projects under Noble 8, including a mass battle simulator, a simulator of an urban environment, a planetary simulation. These are all sub projects of Noble 8. They share the same core, but they have different skinning and different interfaces that come from it. The urban simulation does not run properly in Swift. The port that I did for every other thing works fine in Swift. The urban simulation, there seems to be some weighting in the way in which I'm drawing the urban environments where the drawing is just out of sync, even though mm. code's exactly the same. So I'm maintaining legacy components to this. I'm certainly, if nothing more for one-to-one comparison, maintaining the C simulation source code for at least a couple of years, maybe even four or five years. And if people come in that want the C source code, then I'll maintain parity with that going forward. One of the easiest ways to unit test these kind of things is to have a competing thing that does exactly the same thing, Mm -hmm. but just with different source. So I will probably maintain the C source code for some time as a kind of comparative gold standard, at least on the server side. Yeah. And I mean, um, there, I, I didn't totally say myself correctly. I think it's not that I love C because I love the language itself. I think it's actually got lots of awful quirks and things, and I'd love it to see modernized. But I like the way that it respects how you can program the machine and not sort of does things behind your back all the time, which is the trend in modern languages. Mm. So I'd love like a modern C that just you know just had stupid stuff like strings that know their length, you mm. know, like just. <laughs> Just basics, you know, but I don't want like all that much more than that. So there's a, there's a language called Jai that Jonathan Blow is working on. That's a bit like that, which is like kind of a basically C, but with all the modernizations of like Rust or things of that nature, but not in the direction of C++, which is totally kind of <laughs> gone totally loopy at this point. And like, so that's what seems the, to be eating itself. Noble Ape has the Noble Toolkit, which does all of that. Strings have links. It does object processing. Yeah. So I already have that in the core of Noble 8 so, to yeah, make C yeah. usable in the context that you describe it. Yeah, and there's a lot of nice things you can add to C that would just be useful utilities like 
you know, introspection without a runtime cost, mm. um, like automatic ways of stringifying enums. And there's just like random stuff that's just standard now mm. that like a way to like look back at, uh, do an inspection from within code if you wish it. And so I don't know. I think the, the, the main thrust of C, I think is still correct. You know, no garbage collection and kind of staying close to the hardware and all of that stuff. I think that's fine. It's just, it could have just been cleaned up a bit. And I think C++ dropped the ball. Like Rust is trying and D, D tried as well. <laughs> but anyways, I think it's undeniable. Like you said, that the language of the new generation is like JavaScript um, and Swift, I think for that matter. Um, but how is like, so you, so the backend is now in Node.js. Is that performant enough to run these heavyweight simulations? Well, that's to be decided. I'm not saying it currently is. The C component to that is still, I think I'll get to June 13th with the C stuff still being on the server side. Yeah, the way in I, I which think you have yeah. to tackle this is actually to create microservices after the fact and divide yeah. up the underlying simulation to be quite distributed. Right. And I think that's the only way. And you have to make decisions associated with the data that you're presenting. Yeah. You've got to make that very thin and also really just find means of re- replicating almost like hashes of data where you know mm-hmm. it's being computed on both sides, but it's actually far too heavy to pass the data in a large form, which Nobelab already does, thankfully. I mean, the land is generated through basically a four-byte fractal description. So, mm-hmm. you know, these things are already pretty well taken care of with Nobelab. What interests me is the secondary part, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about this because this is simulation as a service. Once you have the Noble 8 simulation that's up there, perhaps even with an urban environment to make it easy, um, I was pitched in, I think, 99, the map of Berlin, which was vectored at the time, um, and a team that had made the map of Berlin offered it to me to see what the Noble Apes would do in Berlin, which <laughs> was the earliest time now I think a majority of the cities worldwide through a variety of different sources, including open sources, are now available at least with regards to building and street confines vector map. So I think the thing that fascinates me is actually taking the simulation to the real world and providing, you know, a series of points which obviously identify humans walking on the street, for example, in New York City, and then seeing how well the simulation reproduces movement in real time, mm. you know, looking at real world things and moving it back into the simulation environment for kind of compare and contrast to see if the simulation is comparable to, you know, learning or predicting general movement and these kind of things. So I, I foresee simulation as a service actually moving in a really interesting direction that has practical real world implications and certainly solves a variety of problems which aren't solved very well currently by, you know, existing computer methodology. So that's where I'd like to see it go. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of having services that can plug in in each other is is great, even just architecturally speaking, that having people contribute, you know, like you said, it's more likely that enthusiasts nowadays would be more well-versed in Python or, um, you know, coming from the AI field, it's going to be mostly Python. And then <laughs> coming from the web world, it's going to be mostly JS. So, yes. you know, it's... Uh, and it's the, it's actually hard to deny that for like a small simulation that js isn't a good idea because you can get like we we're talking last time about getting your work out there and js is the number one way of getting your work out there like forget putting source code up or even like articles you can just put your stuff online run it in the browser like that seems to be the best way to get participation and get um your ideas out there by far 
So I think like I wouldn't blame people sort of like for for going that route. That seems really logical. So I've just had like really bittersweet relationship with it, where yes. I like I start off and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna use all these dynamic properties. I'm gonna get you know, it's it's all gonna be really flowy and nice. And then I try to simulate like hundred things and it's fine. And then I try to do like ten thousand and it just crawls. And then there's no way I can make it fast. Like, you know, already you have done like all the tricks of, you know, not using this feature or that feature and trying to like pray to the garbage collector as much as possible and sacrifice things to it. And then like, it's still slow. And I think it just, you hit this fundamental wall, but I think I hit it because I try to simulate lots of stuff. Um, like lots of bitty things. Two things here. Two things here. 23 years worth of experience. I mean, there are those in the field that have three decades worth of experience. So my perspective is that most simulation problems just relate to how you divide the simulation problem. Mm-hmm. And moving that aside, the second part, the thing that concerns me through doing this is I am in two minds with regards to whether C was the obstacle for people picking up Noble 8 or whether complexity was the obstacle in people picking up Noble 8. And when mm-hmm. you start creating these things, the complexity and the way in which new a new generation of developers are concerned by complexity is a concern that I have. This is why I'm doing this as an experiment, because it could happen that I put all of this stuff out there and the documentation is is critical, YouTube videos, the works. But then it still requires developers that have an understanding or a complement to complexity when they come into this thing and realize that they can tinker with various areas. And the, the theory is breaking things, right? The fear is you'll break things and, you know, things just won't work anymore and you'll tinker with for five minutes and it'll just break. And I think moving people past that concept of fragility is something that I've had a real problem with over the past at least decade. And I've had some success through this. I've had Bob Mottram, I've had the folks at Apple and Intel, but and a variety of other actually professional programmers. I mean, people who have at least five years worth of professional programming seem to come to know Blake quite comfortably. I had a an engineer from Motorola. I've had various engineers that have come to me and been able to work on certain aspects of Noble without any concern. But there's a kind of introductory programmer that would come to this thing and may have concerns with regards to complexity. And what I'm trying to do is to offer very simple simulations to start off with, but also offer a means of saying, you can't break everything by tinkering with this one part right? Uh, it might uh-huh. break the first time, but then you, source control is just a wonderful way of, of starting afresh. Every time it uh-huh. breaks horribly. So part of it is expressing this culture as well, but I'm I'm feeling positive, let me just say. Yeah, and I, I don't want to like dampen the wind in your sails, to be honest, because like I wish I could do that, because I've actually messed around a bit with, with trying to put JS up, and I just I think I, I might be digging my own hole when I, when I work with it, because I seem to be drawn to precisely the parts that it can't do very well and I seem to shy away from the things that it does well. So I think I might be doing a bit of self-sabotage with regards to um, web programming as well. So I think uh, I think it should work out really well if, if you sort of... Like, I, I actually listened to your podcast when you um, described it. I think it was a few podcasts ago and it sounded like extremely sensible, especially farming out the more expensive bits to service I see and stuff and then you know, I think in reality, if like you said, you, you you have the data that is large, stay where it's needed and only transfer things, you know, carefully. And so if it's architected carefully, I doubt there'll be much of a penalty and you'll get huge gains out of it. So I think 
Um, and, you know, like you said, you've got 23 years of experience, so you're going to architect it pretty dang well, <laughs> I'm suspecting. So. Let's hope. I mean, I've, yeah. I've broken things so many different ways, you have to learn something through it. A topic that I wanted to cover is associated with collaboration. We've kind of touched on that. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, I mean, I don't know whether our conversation, I mean, you emailed me afterwards and said that our conversation certainly motivated you to consider putting your work online in some form. Mm-hmm. which was really the sole aim of the conversation last time. Yeah. <laughs> a secondary question that I wanted to have for you is, as you discover these projects, do you find projects, and I mean, I've done this historically just to test out, Larry Agus Polyworld was a great example of this. I took it, broke it apart, looked at whether I could replace the cognitive simulations of both projects, like literally lobotomize the noble ape, lobotomize the sea monkey, <laughs> stick the reverse brains together and see what happened. <laughs> and it was actually a really fun project. I mean, for me, because I have no issue with regards to hacking a lot of code and working out how compilers break in a variety of different ways and these kind of things, it was actually fun on that level. But mm. do you foresee yourself event- uh, maybe finding a project online and just thinking, hmm, I could tinker with that a bit? Uh, you know, I- I've never been good at that personally. I don't know what trait that is, but I've never been like the kind of engineer that, that breaks things to learn how they work. I, I learn how things work by making them from scratch. And so I'm kind of, I'm much more in the synthesis school of thought than the, the analysis. Like I like reading books and then just trying to do it myself. And I think it's like, maybe it's some kind of selfish drive, but I basically find enjoyment in the building, not in the taking apart and modifying. So I think that's just a motivational thing, honestly. And I'm not sure that's, yeah, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but that's kind of what, what drives me is to, to feel like I made it myself. And I like figuring out that challenge. Mm. I, I absolutely loathe compiler issues, okay. which is one of the reasons I like I've, stay away I've from open source. A so. professional career on, but not because I like it, but because no one else will do it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> My career yeah. is basically made up. <laughs> of things which I have to think about. Do I really want to put this on my resume? Do I really want to do this again? <laughs> These things have included rewriting substantial systems, particularly firmware systems. Mm. And in terms of compiler issues, a company that I work with and never for, for a, a majority of my career, frequently requires you to rewrite everything in a new compiler form. Mm. Um, so eliminate you know, libc++ to, you know, libc or whatever, or do some, like, major rework based on 25 patterns that are very common in the previous code but can't be used in the new compiler for whatever reason. That's Mm. basically my bread and butter for a majority of my career. The notion of creating stuff from the ground up is what I do after hours. The nature of making things work with the least amount of time and resources and looking at every possible way a compiler can break and how to rewrite code basically around how that compiler has broken. That's just, I mean, thankfully, (laughs) in the past two years, my career has changed away from that, but pretty well solidly for the 30-odd years prior. I mean, even when I was starting to program as an early teenager, you know, my first paid-for programming gigs were take this fourth program and rewrite it in C or take this fourth program and rewrite it in a very particular form of Borland Pascal or this kind of stuff. I mean, 
my career is built on doing work that no one else would normally want to do. I think we should be going back that. to writing more things in fourth rather than less things in fourth. <laughs> well, you can have, I, I have a few fourth fans in my, but it's my model <laughs> rail podcast. They're the ones that seem to like fourth. So anyway, yeah. Moving on um, from fourth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Separate podcast. But I think, you know, I've, I've done a fair bit of that in, in, at work as well. It's just, I think, like you said, when I come home after hours, that's the last thing I want to spend my time on is, like I try to do that once and just say, okay, these are my limitations. This is going to be my compiler. I'm not bringing any libraries because I don't want to deal with it. If I'm doing something, I'll just write it from scratch because at least, at least then I'll compile and I'm not going to have to download some crazy make I mean, tool of case, the month. A case example of this, the platform that I do my most support for decided last year they weren't going to support OpenGL anymore. Yeah. Well, that, that's actually, yeah. So I've never supported Mac, but that's kind of. And yeah. To truth be told, actually, the reason that Apple displayed Noble Ape, the reason that uh, Nathan Slingerland and Sanjay Patel picked up Noble Ape in 2003 was because it compiled on three different Apple compilers at the time. And mm. they didn't actually know of any other software that could do that. <laughs> but it was just the nature of my life that I never knew what compiler I would have access to because I was a raving right. student. And I rewrote it based on the fact, oh no, today I'm using MPW, today I'm using you know, think C today I'm using, and I had to get it to work on all those compilers. So, yeah, so I mean, I actually really, um, I struggle with the fact that, like, I wish I was more into taking apart other people's code because mm. I think I would learn quite a lot. So I think that's like a deficiency for, for me as a programmer because I'm so much more drawn to writing it from scratch. But <laughs> that being said, I think I learn a lot from doing it myself as well. So mm. I don't know what the, what the right balance is, but like, you know, if it was something like Noble Ape, I think if I could just, if I could somehow like literally hack it in the browser, I'd be inclined to do it. Cause then I know I'm not downloading some kind of build system. So I created somewhere. ApeScript. I created ApeScript roughly a decade ago mm-hmm. for exactly this kind of developer. It's not, I mean, it's not Erlang robust, but it's certainly robust enough that mm-hmm. it won't crash on you and it will give you plenty of warnings around you know, a variety of different programming pitfalls. When I created ApeScript, one of my developers at the time, Pedro Ferreira, took it away to write a new cognitive simulation in it. He never got it back to me. He went and joined CERN. They took his time from then on. But the hope has always been that people will take something like ApeScript and utilize it to create this when they don't, as you say, they want a browser-like hacking experience. So I have tried to to offer that, but then you know, ApeScript was one of the four pages that Wikipedia pulled. So, like, well, the, this doesn't there's exist. A, there's a thing online called Shader Toy. I don't know if you've come across it, and that's it's basically OpenGL hacking in the browser, and that's been a model that I'm quite happy with, and quite a lot of people in the games community enjoy it. And that's you know highly restricted. It's like you just write shaders, but it turns out you can do quite a lot in pixel shaders these days, including full ray tracing and dynamic scenes and all this stuff so um i think that model where you just like have the script on one side of the screen and then you have the the simulation running on the other side and you're just like literally invited to hack it right there and then it's and it's like live reloading you don't have to restart and stuff like that Mm. i mean Um, script has real-time debugging that it provides as well i mean the the choice at the time was lua or do my own and i picked up script over lua so yeah, maybe well, it was yeah, the wrong Lua, Lewis has its own <laughs> issues, but I quite I like that. I wrote a bunch of stuff in Lua, and it's actually the reason I'm not such a fan of JavaScript because <laughs> they're basically the same problems. Like 
it's really easy to get going, but then after you've got like 10 files, you don't know where anything is anymore and it's running really slow. Mm. And yeah, by the time, like, I actually went through an experience where you, where I tried to pull, like, I wrote a game in Lua and then I tried to optimize it. And by the time I ended up optimizing it, I, I had to like rewrite the garbage collection thing. And I was basically doing C in Lua mm. like by the end of it to make it run fast. And it still ran like, five times slower than C and I like reap no benefit from Lua at the end of it. So I don't know if that's, but you know, that the, the advantage is you can get started. So that's kind of the, you know, if you go and get people hooked, it's awesome to be able to just, you know, maybe you could have ApeScript run and, you know, have a little editor. You can get like a bunch of open source editors now, just like plonk it next to the visualizer. And is there a way to maybe send ApeScript from the client down to the server and like, get it dynamically uploaded in some apes so you can do that currently with the existing with the existing simulation yeah but run, as a service you know like i would just say yeah you could you could do it i mean you could ape script as a service is certainly as far as i can see like one of the no-brainers to have as you say a browser with the editor in there and then that sending stuff to the visual client for you to see. Yeah. You can already kind of do that with the simulation as the application and it gives you the first cycle debug as the immediate first output. So you can do a kind of real time thing where you have basically two files plus the simulation running and you can get the debug being updated through one of the updated files. So, I mean, that's the way that I've done it historically, certainly to demo it. And I think, I'm not sure how Pedro, I think that's how Pedro Ferreira used it as well. You can also do it from the command line which is even easier because you can have two files in the command line running mm. and looking at what the debug output is from, you know, the command line as well. So many yeah, possibilities. I mean, yeah, that's that sounds super cool. If there, I, I've never seen um, a simulation that is sort of run running live while you can hack on it. I think that would be very enticing. I mean, to me at least, because I could see the changes of the stuff immediately. And mm -hmm. if, like you said, it had reasonably robust handling to like at least not crashing it. Then you so, can just... so the whole thing about ApeScript is a single time cycle. What you're programming right. with ApeScript is a single time cycle, and you can make that as elaborate and fractal-like as you want. Okay. Particularly working way through, you know, is the ape holding something? If the ape's holding something, then, you know, execute this code. Or is the ape swimming? Then execute this code. I mean, it basically enables you to, from a single time cycle, do whatever you want to start experimenting with the simulation. You can cut bits, obviously, out of what the apes are doing. And then, you know, it develops accordingly. So, yeah, I think that would be fantastic because that's the same model that Shader Toy has because it, there's no state really. Mm. Um, I mean, the state is maintained by the simulation effectively. So you're not yes. really storing any state in the script. You probably have some functions to sort of like write to memory, read from memory. Kind and of what's thing. fun is that you can make each individual ape run their own ape script. So mm. you can have a majority of apes running one kind of ape script and another group of apes running another ape script, a radical individual ape running a third ape script and you well, can, yeah. yeah so, so here's the thing because so so on shader toy they basically built a community out of this where people post their shaders and you can look at them and it's basically a bunch of cool art demos mm. but you i could imagine a community of people where you know so, so shader toy made it really easy that you click new and it gets you like a new shader and then you you know you put whatever you want and then you just click save and it publishes it and then it just mm. goes up on the website and it's you know the latest one so if if on um, on your uh, noblape.io you had like a way to share these scripts, I could imagine a vibrant community of people saying, hey, look, I discovered this cool behavior. 
here's, you know, here's my script and maybe somebody else can take that one and mix it in. That gives you a really nice module to be like, mm. to, to share that module, you know. Mm. Um, I think that's very accessible Certainly. to people. Anton, you've created another top point for me to work on. I don't know whether I'll have it ready by June 13th, <laughs> but certainly if I'm not dealing with Wikipedia, the sky's the limit. <laughs> yeah. So I want to thank you again for the opportunity to chat. I Apologies to you and the listeners, although the listeners hopefully won't get the brunt of the Wikipedia discussion. Um, <laughs> apologies for, for that. I am going to, I'm aiming to come to Berkeley this weekend, uh, Saturday specifically. Uh, my ah, wife cool. has a bunch of other plans, but I just I haven't been to Berkeley for a couple of years now. She's going to take the car and go on a wild adventure, and I'm going to have a Bart adventure and, uh, you know, head up to your purple world. I don't know if you have any plans on Saturday. I've certainly got half a dozen things I'd like to do in Berkeley, but if I can meet you for a cup of coffee somewhere through then, uh, we'll see if that works out. Yeah, that sounds cool. Uh, I'm sure we could find some time. I'll, I'll have to see. I think we, we might have had some family plans, but I'll, I'll double check and that if there definitely should be a coffee time for sure. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, if, if it's not possible, I have enough stuff to do at Berkeley this one trip. <laughs> also, there's a bit of a, there's a slightly negative omen associated with me meeting people in podcasts. I did a podcast with one of the guys from Jackass, the MTV Jackass show, um, maybe two years ago now. And after recording with him for nine months, it's pretty solidly for nine months, he said, why don't you come and visit me in Pennsylvania? I said, okay. Put the wife in the car. We drove to Pennsylvania. It was like a seven-day road trip. Spent about an hour and a half with him. Uh, podcast was over. <laughs> I've had a series of cases where I've met people, and it's basically ended the podcasting interaction. I don't know. It could be a wide variety of things. I might eat like George Costanza. Who knows? But I do need to warn you that the longest and best-run podcast, uh, Larry Yeager is a good example of this, but the longest and best-run podcast that I've had have never involved with me meeting the individuals in the podcast. So <laughs> be warned, listeners, that this might be the last possible uh, interaction that I have with Anton. Uh, but, yeah, no, it would be wonderful to, to meet you. I'm, I may be overly burdened with books and other things, which is just the nature of my visits to Berkeley, but it would be nice to pick up a coffee perhaps sometime. Yeah, cool. Adventure. Maybe we can break the, the curse. <laughs> Let us hope. <laughs> Let's live in hope. Okay. Anton, it's been a pleasure. Hopefully we'll record again soon. Like I say, I'm going to be recording with Tim Taylor we're going to hopefully cover some of the simulation as a service discussion, plus a bunch of other things. He's written a book about the origins of automata back to the 16th century. So I think we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about with Tim Taylor. And no doubt you'll be listening into that one, and uh, maybe we'll have discussions following that. Anyway, cool. Sounds great. This weekend and talking to you soon. Take care. Take care.